Hello. A proper introduction to this episode is coming. I just wanted to take a couple moments because there were some technological issues that impact the audio quality in this episode. One was a faulty mic on one end of the conversation. So this week's guest, the regular John M. Wilson, was forced to Skype through on his phone rather than his normal computer. For the most part, he sounds pretty good, but there are some connectivity issues that you'll hear. Much worse was on my end. We got interrupted by a ringing doorbell partway through, and I didn't realize at the time, but apparently if there's silence for too long, as there was when I was answering the doorbell, my Skype recorder stopped recording. Because John was forced to use his phone, we didn't have Audacity backups. So thankfully, John was able to step up, and we re-recorded the latter portion of this podcast. So you'll hear that audio shift about 16 minutes in because the two halves were recorded over a month apart. I'd like to thank John for stepping up and agreeing to fill in like this at the last minute to get the podcast out. He has always been there and has filled in previously when other podcasters who were scheduled weren't able to make it. So I just wanted to thank him once again for stepping up and helping me get through this in spite of the tech problems. And to let you guys know that there will be a shift in audio quality about 15 or 16 minutes into the conversation because we just can't avoid that because of the technology. And with no further ado, here is this week's podcast. Welcome to episode 50 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is the man who's probably more familiar to our listeners than anyone other than myself, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. Happy to be back. You're here to talk about some Avengers today. Yes, Avengers number 57. Written by Roy Thomas, penciled by John Buscema, inked by George Klein, colored by some poor soul who doesn't get a credit, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. Whoever that poor soul was, he really liked the color red on the cover. Oh, yeah. Now, the original cover date was October 1968, and the original release date was August 8th of 1968. And as already mentioned, this came out in spot number 50 in this countdown. So we'll... Drop in a quick promo for one of John's shows here, and then get back to the meat of it. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The... Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um, 
maybe it should be that feature characters that have been are currently or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you. And we're back. So as we said before the break, we are discussing Avengers number 57, and this is from the first volume, from 1968, the first Avengers number 57. Some might say the only real Avengers 57, but I I would not be one of those who said that. Yeah, well, the other contenders are either Jeff John's first issue, if memory serves, or possibly something related to Emma Peel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I guess the only other Avengers series that went this long was New Avengers. It's, it's you know, technically not The Avengers, so it doesn't count. And Jonathan Hickman's run is coming to a close. I don't think he hit 57 before they're coming to a close now. Maybe he did. No, he's in the 40s. In the 40s, okay. But that's all in the future and, and, and tangential. We have uh, We have... A beautiful vision to behold in this issue today. Oh, that we do. This is one of the issues where when I threw out the topics for people to join in, I was quite happy that John threw his hat in the ring for this particular issue because this was in an era where it was the the late 60s, mid to late 60s, there were a lot of trademarks that were going to lapse because there were characters that hadn't been published in 17 years. And Marvel was all about grabbing the names to keep the trademarks, even if they were new characters in some cases even more dramatically changed from the Golden Age counterparts than, say, Green Lantern and the Flash were. I mean, Barry Allen Flash versus Jay Garrick Flash. Yeah, Barry was faster and had a different outfit and a slightly different origin, but fundamentally the same. There were some dramatic differences between the Golden Age and the Silver Age Green Lanterns. Vision was another one who was a just... He was probably the most extreme, with the possible exception of Black Widow. Yeah, Black Widow, because... Yeah, the current Black Widow bears no resemblance whatsoever to her Golden Age counterpart. The Vision at least looks similar, and even though the nature of the character is different, there's a similar motif with him coming in out of nowhere and that sort of thing. I mean, the Vision of the Golden Age was an alien who from another dimension, I believe, who came in through smoke. I read some of his early Golden Age stuff, and this Vision, you know, can come through walls into the room. So there's... A similar motif, even if the actual execution is very different. Mm-hmm. I heard, and I'm trying to remember what you were talking about, where I heard this, that Stan Lee actually was telling Roy Thomas not to revive the Vision. He just said, make him a robot. Roy Thomas wanted to make a Vision character for the story, and Stan Lee said, no, make a robot character for the story. So Roy Thomas made a robot character and called him the Vision. That happened a bit. It might have been, and at Niera, sometimes Stan Lee and Martin Goodman were a little bit at odds because Stanley was trying to do just stuff that was new and different, and Martin Goodman was the publisher and Stanley's boss, giving them directions to grab the Daredevil trademark, retain the Black Widow trademark, retain this trademark, grab that trademark. I mean, that's why Marvel came up with Captain Marvel. It was part of that era, so it wouldn't surprise me if Roy Thomas, who did a lot of these reboots because he loved the Golden Age stuff, was hearing it from two sides. He was hearing the editor-in-chief saying, don't 
bring back this alien guy, I want a robot in the story, and hearing his boss's boss saying, help me grab that trademark on the vision, and tried to sort of have it both ways. Roy Thomas, for those who don't know, was a comics fan ever since the late 40s to the early 50s. He tells a story about how he loved the Justice Society of America, which was um, put together by National, former, uh, the former day of DC, and All-American Comics. And he was so excited when his mom had saved up enough money to order him a subscription to All-Star Comics, which is where the Justice Society had their adventures. And he got issue 57 in the mail and loved it. And then the next issue was All-Star Western 58. They had changed the title, changed the format, continued the numbering, and rolled over the subscriptions. He had gotten his subscription just in time for DC to cancel the Justice Society with no announcement or fanfare because that's how they didn't do things in those days. And so years pass, and when the Silver Age rolls around, Thomas, now an adult, he becomes quite the letter hack, writing in a lot to DC and occasionally to Marvel, praising the revivals of all of his favorite characters and of the JSA concept in the form of the Justice League of America. So Roy Thomas and another man named Jerry Bales, they kind of considered the fathers of modern fandom. They had a lot of communication with other fans. They even published uh, their own fanzines. Roy Thomas eventually the job writing comics for Marvel, and his first two big stints were in the X-Men and the Avengers. He took over each book whenever Stan Lee left it. I'm honestly not a huge fan of his early work at Marvel. He takes a while doing stories that, you know, they're fine, they're serviceable, they're just not really that exciting for me. But eventually he gets his legs underneath him and starts kicking out some amazing work in the Avengers. And also in the X-Men, but that lost its audience. He was finding his feet and eventually canceled. But he took the Avengers to some amazing heights. And, and like you said, one of the things that Thomas liked to do from time to time was revive Golden Age characters. And one he had done earlier than this was the Red Raven, who's this character who got one issue in the Golden Age, and then that comic was converted over to be the Human Torch, and no one ever heard from the Red Raven again until Roy Thomas brought him back in the X-Men, and he still hardly ever gets heard from, although I think he's in some current comics right now. Anyways, so he um, he will later go on to, to revive all of his childhood favorites with the Invaders and the All-Star Squadron. So he's a huge part of the comics industry, huge part of history, and I would argue that what Gardner Fox and Bill Finger were to DC's Golden Silver Ages, Stan Lee and Roy Thomas are to Marvel's Silver and Bronze Ages. He's just that important a player in Marvel's early history, and this particular issue is one of the gems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with pretty much everything you said, including... Well, with his X-Men run, I would actually say he didn't find his footing on the X-Men until Neil Thomas came in and said, I want to be a big part of the storytelling. Or sorry, not Neil Thomas, Neil Adams. And that was that was a great little run. Just the book was dead by that point. Ended up canceling it anyway. I've heard of the story that they actually did have a pretty big sales hike from that, but it was so long to get the numbers back in those days that they had already ordered the cancellation of those numbers back. But that is what helped bring it back as a bi-monthly reprint for a while. But anyway, yeah. this is not Avengers vs. X-Men podcast. No, that comes later. But we've been dancing around what this issue is important for, and that is, of course, the introduction of the Vision, which for a character who was not part of the early lineup or that first major roster change, he has gone on to become one of the big, you know, the really big players in Avengers history, the Vision. He's, I'd say he's probably the last iconic Avenger to be introduced to the team. 
I mean, as much as I've enjoyed Spider-Man and Daredevil being on the team, I don't consider the, them to be the iconic Avengers. They're iconic heroes, not iconic Avengers. But if you look at like the rest yeah. of Avengers history and all the random heroes that came and went, you're right. I think the Vision is probably the last really big hitter. Wonder Man yeah. might... You, you could argue that he precedes the Vision because of that one issue, even though his the actual Wonder Man that we know didn't come until much later. Yeah, and the same with Black Widow, because, you know, she didn't... She was definitely a character, but I don't... It's been a while since I read this in sequence. I read it out of sequence and in isolation for the podcast. I don't believe she's part of the regular roster at this point. No, she's in a weird place right now, and I made a note about that. She's she's doing assignments for S.H.I.E.L.D. They weren't happening in the S.H.I.E.L.D. comic, though. They just get talked about off-panel in Avengers. I mean, they get they get talked about in Avengers, but they happen, all, happen off-panel. So she didn't have her well-known look yet. She's still a sort of a Catwoman, you know, type of look. And... She's going to get her revival about two or three years in the future from here, where she gets the the, the gray zip-up look that she basically still has today. Mm-hmm. So she is a character. She's in the Avengers. It's the only place where she's appearing, but she's not an Avenger. Really, she's just functioning as Hawkeye's would-be romantic interest right now. Yeah, she's less of an Avenger than Jarvis at this point. <laughs> this is true. And, 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 and Jarvis and Hawkeye... They, they they tried a couple dates, but it never really worked out. Yeah, I guess Jarvis is just too old-fashioned for that. <laughs> so the plot of this is interesting because, I mean, we are introduced to the Vision from the outset. And it's not that common to have a brand new character that's introduced on page one unless it's their first issue of the title. You know, you'd expect to see Daredevil on the first page of Daredevil and Superman on the first page of Superman issue. But when they're introducing a character who's going to be around for a while, they don't know what kind of traction he's going to get. He's not even in the group. The, he's introduced on the first page, just walking through the rain, then he starts flying. And the next thing we see, he comes in through the wall, barging in and attacking. Or actually, sorry, first he opens a window and then goes after the wasp who escapes through a keyhole and he comes through the wall after her. It makes you wonder why he opened the window, right? Yeah, it kind of does, aside from, you know, giving her a chance to take a, a pot shot at Hank Pym later when he breaks the window and she says... Thanks for smashing that expensive glass to smithereens. Even my would-be assailant opened it by hand. <laughs> so this is part of the time when Hank and Janet were on the rock. So it does seem like a little bit artificial of a way to, to bug them. Well, in, in, yeah, in the, the, the Hank Pam, Hank Pam, Hank Pam, Janet Van Dyne storyline comes to a nice big head immediately after this story. Because then he goes crazy and becomes Yellowjack and they get married. Yeah. And to give Kurt Busiak credit in a podcast that you'll be hearing later, but which has already been recorded. He actually does a nice job of, ex- of explaining why there's a trigger that sets him off so recently after this story. When does he do that? Ultron Unlimited. Ah, well, that's on the list. Okay. It is. Yeah, so we will be getting to that on October 14th. Well, I, I put that on the iPad, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. I know that that's from that and the, there's a Kang story from that same era that you've already done an episode for. That's near of Avengers that I'm really just not that familiar with that I'm looking forward to getting to. My Avengers knowledge is really great for the 60s and 70s. But after that, I don't know a whole lot up until you get to Brian Michael Bendis and then I know his run. Okay. Yeah, I was actually pretty similar. But that's actually part of the Ultron Unlimited and Avengers King Dynasty podcast. Okay, good, good. So, so continuing in the storyline here, after Hank and Janet deal with the now unconscious vision, we cut to Hawkeye and Black Widow having their little spat with their status quo as a part of a one-pager. Continues from there to Black Panther, who's out in the rain, but, you know, still fighting the good fight and helping the downtrodden. So, and he realizes, yeah, there's been an Avenger signal calling him, but he's been 
too preoccupied to notice. They didn't really know what to do with Black Panther, I feel like, sometimes. They gave him several little personal missions and personal goals in life that he wants to fulfill, and they get introduced, and then they never get used. One of those is helping out with the neighborhood, where he wants to, you know, take care of street crime and solve street crimes. And an offshoot of that is that he becomes a school teacher in Harlem to work with troubled kids and, and make movies about helping street city kids learn algebra and stuff. Uh, no, that's, that's Edward James Olmos. Sorry. But no, he does become a school teacher. And, and yet aside from like one or two issues on each of those things, they never really go anywhere after that. So I feel like Roy Thomas wanted to use the character, but didn't really have the space or, you know, storytelling resources to do it. Yeah. To me, it almost feels like they recognized the significance of having a prominent African-American character, or in this case, just straight up African character. Right. As a member of the Avengers and knew how important that was and liked having him in there and liked what he represented. But they were still racist enough in that era that they said, but I don't know how to write a black guy and didn't really know what to do with him. It's almost like they couldn't get a grasp because they were scared to try and get a grasp because they were more concerned about messing it up. And I've been reading Captain America from this era. Some of the stuff that I feel like they wanted to do with Black Panther, people did end up doing with the Falcon, where he, yeah. he's not a pastiche, he's not a stereotype, but he is a black man in Harlem, and he is able to do some stuff of social good in addition to doing superhero things. So yeah, Black Panther gets basically assaulted by some guys on the street, and he, he makes short work of them because he's awesome. But then he goes back up to the mansion and he finds their new their new visitor, their unwelcome visitor laid out on a table. Yeah. And this is one that I thought was a nice touch in the dialogue because they're trying to establish what the vision is and how he's different than the rest. And, you know, Hank Pym says, according to my examination, he's every inch a human being, except that all his bodily organs are constructed of synthetic materials. And Hawkeye is the one that says, holy cats, Mount Mountain, like you're synthesoid. Which is a little bit of a continuity point, but... They they always make a really, really big deal about how he's not a robot, he's not an android, because he does everything a human can do except synthetically. It's interesting. I mean, there's a couple key points in this that jumped out at me. One is that this conversation about the synthesoid has never happened. It automatically lends a certain degree of credibility because you're saying, oh, these guys have already talked about it, even though we never saw that on panel. And the other piece was nice. As you said, they often make a point of the fact that he's not a robot. The word robot first appeared in R.U.R., a play by the Brothers Chapek, which was originally published in 1923. The Czech original is public domain. The English translations are not. They are more recent. So the one I'm going to read from here is the one that was translated by P. Selver and adapted for the English stage by Nigel Playfair. And in this, the original definition of a robot from Rossum's Universal Robots was that they're synthetic people. It goes back, do you know what isn't in the lesson books? That old Rossum was quite mad. Seriously, Miss Glory, you must keep this to yourself. The old crank actually wanted to make people. But you do make people. Synthetically, Miss Helena. But old Rossum meant it actually. He wanted to become a sort of scientific substitute for God, you know. Imagine, then, that he decided to manufacture everything as in the human body. I'll show you in the museum the bungling attempt it took him ten years to produce. It was to have been a man, but it lived for three days only. Then up came young Rossum, an engineer, the nephew of old Rossum. A wonderful fellow, Miss Glory. When he saw what a mess of it the old man was making, he said, It's absurd to spend ten years making a man. You can't make him quicker than nature. You may as well sh shut up shop. And then he set about learning anatomy himself. So he's trying to make a synthetic person as well. Yeah. 
And that was the, the original concept of a robot. Exactly. So the original concept of a robot is what they're now calling synthesoid. That's funny. The evolution of robots and what robots are for and everything is, is, is kind of strange because you have the two different sort of two different directions that coming at it from the idea of making a synthetic man versus the idea of making, you know, mechanized tools that can move on their own and somehow, some way wanting those two paths to come together into one creation. But it's, it's evidently problematic. You can't just go out and build one of these things. No, no, not easily. But going back to um, the, the line from Hawkeye, holy cats, men mountain, like your synthesoid. Like you said, this has not been actually said on the page before now, we all assume that in our comics, you know, there are things happening between scenes and between issues. But he's, you know, there is a story point that is going to become important in the story of the Vision and of Ultron that they're inserting <laughs> backwards into continuity without actually having been there the first time. But they're going to do it in such a way that that ends up making sense because the character, you know, one of the main characters responsible doesn't even remember it happening. So I like how they do it, but it's a little bit of, of a parallel to like the Sentry and Jessica Jones, how we're just pretending they've been there the whole time, whatever they actually haven't. Or that one X-Man whose power is that you forget about him as soon as you stop seeing him. And so he's actually been on the team since the 60s, but you never remember having seen him. I forget his name. That's pretty awesome power. Yeah, I don't remember anything about him, actually. <laughs> See, it's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> So from there, the vision starts to wake up and he immediately reacts and starts tearing through the Avengers. And we get a nice action showpiece where he stuns Goliath or giant, giant man right off the bat, pretty deftly handles Hawkeye and Black Panther at the same time. Oh, yeah. And then it's not until Hank Pym regroups that they finally subdue him. And, you know, he realizes he's not in control. And it does a couple of things. It shows he's not controlled. It also shows just what kind of a powerhouse we're dealing with. Now, it's a, it's a comic trope that the first time anybody ever appears, they're at one of their highest power levels. Because you, you, you deal with them whenever they're super powerful, and you beat them, and then every time you beat them later, you kind of have to make it a little bit easier because, you know, the first time was the best time. But the Vision really, really is powerful. That's one of the things that um, Silver Age Avengers was always, that the creators were always trying to deal with is, Who's the powerhouse on the team? Who's going to be the real muscle? And at this point, Captain America's not around, and Goliath's storyline has been iffy. They're about to change him into something else here pretty quick. So having the Vision come in as the new powerhouse muscle, that's just part of the strategy of their storytelling. But yeah, he, he's not in control because somebody else is in control. Oh yes, the one who created him to destroy the Avengers, Ultron 5. Dun dun dun. Wasn't there a movie by him recently? I believe there was, although I don't recall if he was number five yet or not. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. And like, if for anyone who doesn't know that he's called Ultron 5 right here, um, because there were several prototypical models that never really figured into the story. It's not like the first appearance of Ultron was Ultron 1. Um, but when Ultron first appears, he's Ultron 5, and you hear his backstory and there's other earlier models. But yeah, Ultron 5. In a speaking role, yeah. Yeah, it's the first time Ultron speaks and interacts, he's Ultron 5, but I believe when I was doing a read-through, if you look carefully, the earlier models are drawn in the background in Hank Pym's lab. <gasps> are they really? I think just for an issue or two before the big appearance, but... I might have to look that up, because I don't remember that. I, I believe the trash can on wheels is in the background before he's introduced as Ultron 1. Interesting. Okay. So they decide to go and, and use Vision to go and find Ultron 5, because... We're, we're sort of taking a chapter out of 
a larger saga here with this issue. The first Ultron story was a slow burn over several months. And so this issue kind of is in the middle of that. But since it's 1968, they're really, really good about individual issues standing on their own because of the story structure of the vision being introduced while they're still trying to find and stop and, and just figure out what the deal is with Ultron. It's, it's both a standalone story and part of a larger saga. It is. Yeah. It's that compartmentalized storytelling, which is very challenging to do. Yeah. It's no mystery why it happens so rarely now that instead you just have one story that's spread out over, you know, six 20 page issues rather than 20 page chapters or 20 page smaller stories that make up a larger story. Just the, the convention is very, very different now. It is. And that's in all media. All right. So from there, they, they do get close enough to Ultron that they have to deal with some of his defenses. Yeah, the defenses, I mean, various things like fire attacks and there's there's a giant robot that attacks Goliath and other such things. They even get in a um, pre-Star Wars trash compactor kind of place and Vision makes a phone call on the comms to have them shut down all the trash compactors on the detention level. He doesn't really, though. No, but it's not the only time I'm reminded of Star Wars in this issue. That's because it's a good issue and a good movie. Yep, and possibly more than that. It wouldn't surprise me if the if George Lucas's established Marvel fandom means that he was familiar with these when he was working on some of the designs for Star Wars and got some inspiration from these issues. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah, George Lucas is a Marvel Star Wars fan. I mean, Doctor Doom's influence on the design of Darth Vader, all that sort of stuff is. Yeah. But um, we do get to Ultron, and Ultron is Ultron is suave. He's standing there with his hands behind his back. So you've returned to your senses at last. You are wise, android, wise to thus desert the doomed mortals. Of course, that's my bad imitation of the movie voice. Whenever I read this to my kids, I'm all like, So, you return to your senses at last. You are wise, android, wise to thus desert the doomed mortals. Because to me, that sounds more like a robot voice. Yeah, but yeah, the way he's posed, I, I totally see why James Spader would be good casting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, is that Ultron never really has behaved... Well, I say never has, that's not true. But in these early stories, Ultron does not behave like a robot at all. At least not like the stereotypical robot. Right, right. So, as opposed to the actual robots, well, yeah, he doesn't behave like those either. Staying in one spot, building a car his entire life. <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing, sitting there building a car. <laughs> so, he and Vision fight, and... Vision does his little fade-out thing where he allows Ultron to dive right through him, and then Ultron dives into something that appears to blow him up. There's a big flume, and then the other Avengers show up, and they're like, huh, I guess that's over now. Yeah, it's the one that they term the energy vat, I believe. But yeah, as soon as that happened, all the traps shut down, which is how the Avengers are able to rejoin him. The walls just automatically stop, Giant Man's captor just collapsed. Ultron is at least injured enough that he's no longer controlling the death traps that he was throwing at them. And it says that they, they used the weakness. The, there were the twin electrodes on his skull were his weakness. So that's what he used to, to damage Ultron. We don't really see anything that really details that specifically. Just, like I guess, Ultron dives through vision and then, and then hits an explosion. But the only thing we see on the last page is Ultron's head in a pile of rubble. And a kid finds it and kicks it around. And that's the end of the story. But not the end of the comic, because this scene is has a really cool poem added as the narration. This is one of my favorite poems. I'll just read it because it's not that long. It says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell 
that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things so this traveler has found these remnants of this huge statue just the parts of the legs are standing and nearby is this you know disembodied head which you know is kind of what the boy has found in the in the garbage here and he goes on to say the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is ozamandias king of kings look on my works ye, ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the low and level sands stretch far away and so you have this idea that this statue was once the statue of a great king who had a vast empire and a vast land and at the time of his life the time of his reign he expected that you know the things that he had done would always be remembered because of the impact they had and yet here we are some unknown number of millennia later and all we have is the head and feet of his statue and everything else has passed it's just sand and desert it's it's a poem that i love because it gives weight to the antiquity of human civilization on earth and just the sheer vastness of history that exists but it's cool here because ultron was this really you know powerful villain and now all he is is this head that is being kicked around never to be heard from again yeah and warning spoilers for watchmen but yeah ozymandias not necessarily what he seems that comes out in the poem too <laughs> yeah yeah he's a weird person to name your character after anyways yeah it's the kind of thing that makes perfect sense from alan moore's perspective not necessarily from the character's perspective so what'd you think of this story i think it's a good one this is one of the ones that leaves its mark i mean it's difficult to have a weak introductory story and have a character come out of it i mean wolverine managed to pull it off but wolverine wasn't and he's not the star that he's become because of incredible hulk 181 he is the star that he's become because of his work in x-men right and his appearances there, particularly under the influence of John Byrne. This is one of those characters where we've got the introduction of a good character, but the issue itself is good and entertaining anyway. Right. I mean, th this could have ended with the Vision and Ultron dying arm in arm, and neither of them appeared again, and it would still stand as an issue that's worth remembering, just because of the strength of the storytelling. Yeah, the storytelling is solid. Vision is very compelling and very interesting from the very first page. The fact that the second, the next issue delves into his background and into his character and, fl and <laughs> fleshes him out, pun intended, I guess. Um, that's, it automatically elevates him in the, the eyes of the reader. But even without that second issue, this is a great little, a little chapter of Avengers history that brings about a new character to the fold. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it is. It's really entertaining. As, as you said before, we're about to see another roster shift in the Avengers which was a very common practice in these days of the title. Yeah, they like to keep things fluid. And that was kind of the mantra for Boz, keeping the lineup sort of always guessing, because it's, it's really just the next issue or two that Hank Pym goes insane and becomes Yellow Jacket, and Janet Van Dyne marries them under false pretenses. So, John, how were you first introduced to this story? Um, I forget now how much I've told this story, because, you know, we've done several recordings, and I always remember what order things are in. But... My exposure to the Avengers really started happening, as far as this era of the Avengers goes, really started happening after the 2012 film. Um, I knew modern Avengers. I've been reading them since I came back to comics in 2008, but I didn't start diving into the old histories until later. You know, I say that, totally lying, earlier than that, I was reading to my daughter. 
whenever the first Iron Man film came out, she was six, and she and I started reading old 60s Marvel comics and included the Avengers in that. So at some point between 2008 and 2012, I had already read this story once and did it with my daughter as one of our bedtime stories and really, really enjoyed it. And I've read it a few more times since then as a part of other reading projects. So it's one that always stuck out in my head. Actually, whenever it appeared on the list, I thought it was the next one because I, I saw Avengers 57. And I was like, oh, even an android shall cry. I'll do that one. But it wasn't that one. That's okay, though. It's okay. <laughs> I really enjoy Roy Thomas's run on the Avengers after about his first 10 or 15 issues. When you get to the late issue uh, 40s and the issue counts from that till the end of his run around 100, that's that's some good comics right there. Yeah, we've got some really great stuff coming. So I remember reading this. I don't clearly recall if the first time I read this was from the DVD-ROM or from the Essentials, because I, I started reading stuff for the 60s in Essential format, and then when Git Corp was releasing their DVD-ROMs, then I started picking those up, because in a price per issue, I mean, the only thing now that beats it is Marvel Digital Unlimited. Yeah, we have the Git Corp DVDs. We love those things. Yeah, or possibly the, the Scribd subscription now as well, yeah. uh, which has a lot more than Marvel on it. Yeah, so I, I don't recall exactly which one of those I first read, but it was just... You know, after the Marvel movies were coming out, but well before Iron Man, I was picking these up and I'd read just about everything. I've now, well, at this point, I've read every incontinuity Marvel story aside from the Millie the Model runs from the entire 1960s. Okay. That full decade and, and big chunks of other decades as That's well. That's my mission. I'll, I'll get there eventually. I mean, I've read like all the Cap and all the Avengers and all the Spider-Man and all the Fantastic Four and all the X-Men and, you know, a lot of the titles. I read all of the 19 stuff, but I haven't read everything yet. Well, we'll get you there by the end of this podcast. I know you've been reading along, even if you're not on the episodes, and I believe you said that Nick Fury was one of the ones that you're missing. Yeah, yeah. And I know you're well enough to know you're not going to read the Nick Fury half of the book and not read the Doctor Strange half. <laughs> all right, so, yeah, that's where this came out. Now, in terms of the impact this had on the industry, I think we've we almost touched on that before we did the plot synopsis. Ladies and gentlemen, behold the vision. Right. And he is, I mean, like we said earlier, he's one of the biggest Avengers to come out that wasn't created by Stan Lee in the initial, you know, initial go. Um, I think you said he was the last iconic Avenger to get introduced. And there are a lot of Avengers. I mean, a lot of Avengers over the 50 years of Avenger history. But yeah, the Vision is probably the last one that really, really stands out and has stood the test of time. And the Vision and Ultron, in this, you know, multi-issue saga, they kind of go together, and they just got a movie together. So we're still seeing the impact and the repercussions on the on the industry from this issue and this run of issues in the theaters and the uh, the media and the the storytelling today. Oh yeah. Plus, yeah, they might really be together in the movies now. That's little theory I have about the way to interpret the final yeah, scene. Yeah, I think you're right between the two. But anyway. No spoilers on this podcast in case people haven't seen it. And if you haven't, it's been almost two months. Get out there. It's great. So did you notice any deeper meanings or messages or morals that were coming out through this, the portion of the podcast that I've shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast? I don't remember which ones we did on the previous version of the recording, but I do. I was thinking about, just as you were asking that, how the vision is created by Ultron. And it seems in the beginning of the story that he is an instrument of Ultron, an instrument of evil, an instrument to destroy the Avengers. And yet, aside from just a couple of times where his brain gets taken over, he does everything he can to not be that. 
So he is the apple that wants to go very, very far away from the tree. Yeah, and that is actually a lot of what we talked about in the first recording, too, about how that's what struck me as well. It seems like, you know, judge someone on their own merits based on their own decisions. Don't judge them based on who they're associated with, you know, friends or family, right? Each person is an individual, and each person deserves the, the benefit of the doubt. And you also don't quite know what they're dealing with. I mean, it, it wasn't until they got some hint that the Vision was not in control that the Avengers were willing to back down and, you know, let him try to work through it rather than attack full on. And then everything comes around full circle in the next issue because they discuss all the things that Vision has helped them to do, and then they welcome him into the ranks and give him an Avengers status. And the Vision is gobsmacked that they would, A, forgive him for attacking them in the night and invading their lives, but B, welcome him as a friend. And that's where you have the uh, the famous scene of even an android can cry. It's just that human combination of humility and shame and the feeling of being loved all coming together with the character. And it's just, it's a great, great start to this character. Oh, it is. Yeah. This is one of the introductions from the 60s where it's fundamentally the same characters we'll find now. Yes. I also like the fact that even though he is synthetic, he does clearly have emotions from the start because that becomes, you know, you're seeing some, but how much emotion he actually has really becomes a big part of his ongoing story, particularly in relationship to the Scarlet Witch. Right. And we talked about some of the early developments of that with the, uh, or we will talk about <laughs> some of the early developments of that with the Kree Scroll War, which um, is another major milestone in the development of this character. I've gotten some 50-odd issues past this issue in my reading. And the Vision, he doesn't always totally understand his emotions. He does have a little bit harder time dealing with them. But I don't think that that's unusual or not to be expected, seeing as how you and I have had 30, 40-plus years of life trying to figure out our emotions. And he started in Avengers 57 from Ground Zero trying to figure out his yeah, for all we know, he's had 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, totally forgivable and, and totally understandable. I mean, later he basically gets them shut off, but that's a later story. Yeah, well, it's easier when you're dealing with the board to just turn off your emotion chip. Yeah. So I think we have at least strongly alluded to why we think it landed at this point in the countdown. Well, it, it's neat because we're in uh, episode 50. So the first 25 stories, not that they were bad. Uh, there were some real gems in there, but, you know... Going forward from here, I'm expecting, you know, to more often to be going from strength to strength. But this this is one of those stories that, you know, was fundamental to Marvel's development and the Avengers development as a franchise. And like you said, unlike some first appearances of some characters, this is a story that stands on its own. It's historically important. It's fun to read. And it, it has literary merit. So, yeah, I think it's only at 50 because there are a lot of really good stories out there. But it definitely is worthy to be on the list. Yeah, it, it just cracked the top two-thirds. So we're actually about a third of the way through this podcast series. Dun, dun, dun. But like two-thirds of the way through our reading, because of the freaking clone saga. <laughs> I'm just at Hawkeye. <laughs> well, that's a good place to be, considering we're going to be discussing Hawkeye next week. Yay! So did you have any closing thoughts before I could tell listeners where they could find that? No, just... The Roy Thomas era of the Avengers is highly worth your time. Like I said, he picks up, I think, around 33, and it's it's a little bit rocky when he first comes on. Uh, he's he's never written comics before. He's doing the Avengers and the X-Men, and he's trying to 
figure out exactly what kinds of stories work well for him. But he and John Buscema figure it out. And by around 47, there's a Magneto issue that in my mind sort of is a nice little boundary line from Rocky Roy Thomas to more solid Roy Thomas. And this comes out of creative energies in his that are very strong. And this whole run of the Avengers is worth reading, but definitely the uh, Vision and Ultron saga. Yeah, I would agree with pretty much everything you just said. We will definitely be hearing more of Roy Thomas with Buscema and some other great artists in about 12 weeks' time. With John as well, and we can guarantee that because it's already been recorded. Right, so John, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And for those at home listening, what was voted onto the list was the entire Hawkeye run by Matt Fraction and David Aja, which is 22 regular issues plus an annual. We will be covering all but issue 22 next week. That's because of the availability of the issues. 22 hasn't come out yet. Not yet. No, most of them have been published. Everything up to and including issue 20 is on Marvel Digital Unlimited. There are two or three trade paperbacks and a premium hardcover available covering the first chunk of the run. Issue 21 is not yet on Marvel Digital Unlimited, but it should be very shortly. There's usually a six-month delay, and that came out in February. Issue 22 is due two weeks to the day after the podcast is scheduled for release, so it's due July 15th. Assuming there's no more delays. This is true, but at this stage, it's not going to be delayed by more than a week or so. Okay. The issue would have to be far enough along in production that it's only actual production issues like printer issues and things like that that would postpone it for it. Good, good, good. So it's actually coming out. We're actually getting the conclusion. Now that there's a whole other Hawkeye series going, we're going to get the conclusion of this one. Yeah, I believe all new Hawkeye is going to be about three issues in by the time this Hawkeye finishes. But we will discuss more of that next week when Mark Smith joins us. Hooray! So in the meantime... Feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher and share the links with people that you know who might be interested. Everyone is always welcome to come to the Facebook forum and discuss the podcast there. And just generally speaking, thank you for listening.